0: May be seated. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50. This is a, a Psalm uh, of Asaph. And as as we read through the Psalm, I think you will you will notice that that, that there was something that had gone on with with the people of God, with Israel and and God is, is bringing them into the courtroom, into his courtroom. And this is a, a, a warning passage uh, for the people who had uh, apparently they were still uh, keeping the ceremonial law. They were they were still providing sacrifices, but they had uh, confused or perverted the, the, the purpose for those sacrifices uh, they were treating, it seems, as if they were treating their, those sacrifices as if they were uh, like making sacrifices to pagan gods. And so you'll notice some very familiar uh, passages in this particular psalm that you're probably familiar with. Uh, God saying that he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And God is saying, I, I don't have any need to be fed by these sacrifices you're making I am all-sufficient. I am self-sufficient. And so, uh, this is a warning for, warning for uh, us here to, to be careful that we stay faithful to our, our Lord. This is the Word of the Lord, Psalm chapter 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Lord, we are we are thankful for the sweet promises of your word, and, and they really do bring life to us. But Lord, I also this morning thank you for your warnings, for your warnings are good for us. Lord, how often can we be like the people of Israel and we can presume upon your grace? How often, Lord, can we, we live our lives and... And Lord, live our lives in a way that, that we, Lord, we, we, we forget you. And we forget, Lord, that we are called to be a holy people. Lord, we are called to be, be a people who are set apart from the world. Not a people who, who continue to live in sin. Lord, you've been so gracious to warn us and to remind us that, that true salvation Results in fruit. Results in faithfulness. Results in us eagerly serving you and being obedient to you. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved, and because your Spirit works in us. And so today, Lord, I I pray that we would take this warning to heart. Lord, today we are grateful that we get to gather together and 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 hear sing your praises and pray to you and seek you and and hear your word preached and lord we just pray that lord through the preaching of your word you would you would do exactly what you desire through your people and in your people so we thank you lord for blessing us and thank you for the sweet gospel that reminds us lord that our 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 savior christ has died for his people he has been slain for his people he has suffered unthinkable things for his people and He has risen from the dead. And that those of us who are trusting in Him, Lord, we can have this, this free grace. We have this free grace offered to us, this mercy offered to us, that our sins are forgiven. Lord, let us live like a forgiven people with thanksgiving. Lord, offering sacrifices to You, not in order to be saved, but because of our great love and mercy of our God. We commit these things to you, our Lord, in Christ's name, Amen. He will stand. We will continue to sing. Whatever my God ordains is right. Hymn number sixty-six.
1: Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abide be still what he does, and follow where he died. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me there, I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. He will me there, I He will not leave me. I take and tell what He has said. His hand can turn my grief away, and patiently I wait. my faint heart, I take it all untringingly. My God is true each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and maiden sorrow shall depart. Sweet comfort yet my God ordained is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow need or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father stands round me there, he holds me back, I shall not call, and go so to him. Me that I shall not fall. My father's hair is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him.
0: This morning, encourage you to turn with me, not to Romans, not to Nehemiah, but Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one. Today, this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at the first part of Paul's uh, letter to the churches in Galatia. Um, Scholars are torn by Exactly uh, which churches this might be was it, was it in northern Galatia was it in southern Galatia was it the churches that that Paul planted on his first missionary journey uh, you may remember Iconium Lystra derb uh, was was that who he's writing to um, but the good news this morning is we don't have to know exactly which uh, group of churches that he was writing to because the message, message is quite clear. And so I'm going to start us off this morning by reading uh, the first uh, ten verses of, of Galatians. And uh, the sermon will be based on, on the first nine verses. And so, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we rely on you this morning to take your word and to apply it to our hearts. Lord, this is a word that every Christian needs to be reminded of. This is a word that everyone who is deceived needs to hear. And we rely on you, Lord, to to do the work that only you can do by opening ears, opening hearts, planting seeds, causing them to grow and bear fruit. And so, Lord, we rely on you. We understand the truth of what your word teaches, that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. And so, Lord, we we ask you this morning to, to build the house Grant me to, to preach your word in the power of your spirit. Grant us to hear your word in the power of your spirit. And let us leave a people uh, that are changed and that are encouraged and that are comforted by the truth of the pure, unadulterated gospel. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, one unsuspecting evening around nine PM John suddenly rushed to the toilet and began to vomit. Concerned, he and his wife, Gina, suspected that he had probably caught a a stomach virus from somewhere. But about a couple of hours later at 11 p.m., Gina started to feel similar. She started to feel lightheaded and, and nauseous. Her body was so cold... That she thought she had taken a dip in an ice bath. That's what it felt like. And her heart rhythms, they just fell off to her. Well, worried, she went to where all people go to find out what's going on. She went to an online search for possible causes. Thankfully, in this case, she did. And to her shock she found that her and John's symptoms matched exactly with carbon monoxide poisoning. In a panic, they immediately woke up their two-year-old child and they they rushed out of the house to call 911. And later, they learned from the fire department, they had narrowly escaped death because the oxygen saturation in their home had plummeted to a scary 3.2%. Carbon monoxide, you're probably aware, is a silent and a deadly poison because it's odorless and it's colorless. And there's really only one way that it can be detected, and that is by using what's known as a carbon monoxide detector. Some of you, I'm sure, have them in your homes. Well, we're not here this morning to talk about carbon monoxide poisoning. We're here this morning because there is another poison, a spiritual poison that is, figuratively speaking, being breathed in by men, women and children all over the world today, both inside and outside the church. It's a poison that I have no doubt is being breathed in by some who are listening to this message today. This poison is, is just as silent as carbon monoxide, and it's even more deadly Because its end is not merely just the grave, but its end is an eternity in hell forever. And the only way to detect this type of poison is that the spirit of God must work through the word of God. And we're going to rely on him today to do just that. Well, this morning, a little bit of context, we're going to be looking at, as I said a little bit earlier, a group of churches uh, that where some individuals in these churches had already been breathing in, begun to breathe in this spiritual poison. See, Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to, as we said earlier, either in northern or southern Galatia, perhaps some of that he had personally planted on his first missionary journey. And these churches, which were comprised primarily of of Gentile believers, had come under the influence of a group of, Of false teachers known as Judaizers. And the Judaizers' message, what they were teaching was essentially this. That in order for you to be acceptable in God's sight, you must believe in Jesus and keep certain aspects of the law of Moses. Without circumcision, they said, You you can't be saved. You're an almost Christian, but you're not there. Without keeping the appointed feast, you cannot be saved. You can see some of these things being brought out a little bit later in the letter letter to the Galatians. But in a nutshell, what they were teaching is is that Christ is necessary for your salvation, but he is not sufficient for your salvation. Or to put it another way. Christ plus your works equals salvation. Well, Paul had had gotten word of this poisonous teaching and he had picked up his pen to write arguably his most zealous letter in the New Testament. The Galatians were in danger. They were in danger of abandoning the gospel, of abandoning Christ and abandoning the salvation that was in him alone. And so a deep love for these people compelled Paul to write in no uncertain terms about the seriousness of what was at stake. And so Galatians is a big, fat warning against the spiritual poison of legalism, of legalism. Legalism has has many subtle forms, but at the heart of legalism is a pursuit of God's acceptance or God's salvation by what we do. Our own works. And it could be pursuing God's acceptance by by keeping the law of Moses like the Judaizers were, were trying to, to proclaim, or it could be as subtle as pursuing God's acceptance by a set of standards that we or someone else has established as a means to earn God's acceptance. See, if legalism was a religion today, it would be the largest religion in the world. And the reason for that is, is because the natural bent of fallen man has always been to try to make ourselves acceptable to God by our own efforts. And every religion just about that you'll find, which you'll uncover Every false religion at the heart of it is legalism. And so as we look in Galatians one, one through nine this morning, it'll be helpful to know that we are going to be in the biblical category of justification, of justification and justification. Just as a reminder, it has to do with how a person is declared righteous in God's sight. Or to say it another way how a person is made acceptable to God. And it's vitally important that we, that we keep our categories straight. Because listen, legalism is the child that's birthed when the biblical categories of justification and sanctification are confused. See, when God justifies, He does that on the basis of, of not your works, but Christ works. So when a person is genuinely justified by faith, he then begins sanctifying a person. And what that means is that he begins that lifelong process where the Holy Spirit progressively makes a person more and more holy. Where righteous deeds certainly begin to be done. They're, they're fruit. But those righteous deeds, listen, contribute absolutely nothing whatsoever To that person being justified in the first place. Well, maybe you're here today and and you have a background. That maybe that's not what you were taught. Maybe maybe a verse that you often heard is you said you say to me, well, how would you explain this, pastor? What did James mean in his letter, in his epistle, when he said that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Doesn't that just completely, completely, isn't that completely different from from what you're saying? Well, if we are going to be faithful interpreters of God's word. What we have to do is we have to look at the context, not just isolating a verse and not looking at what comes before it or after it, because when we actually look at James and we actually look where that verse comes in, we can see that what James is saying is that real faith. That justifies is evidenced by good works. Look what James says. This is in the same same passage. in two chapter uh, chapter two, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, if if it's not real faith, it's not the kind of faith that justifies because real justifying faith results in good works. It results in fruit works that are which are done through the sanctifying work of the Lord, through the spirit. But listen, those good works don't make you acceptable to God. They contribute absolutely nothing whatsoever to your righteousness in God's sight. Because if you understand the pure, unadulterated gospel, you understand that the righteous works by which you are declared righteous in God's sight are not your own. They're an alien righteousness. They're a foreign righteousness. They're a righteousness that is apart from you. It is the very perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to the believer by faith. And that perfect righteousness, there's nothing that you can do, or I can do, to add from it or subtract from it. And if you try to, if you try to say, no, 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 it's not, it's not just Christ's righteousness. It also is my righteousness. What you have done is you've mixed justification and sanctification. And that is a deadly concoction. Because that is a spiritual poison, a deadly poison of legalism. And you have slapped, essentially slapped Christ across the face. And you have said, what you have done is not good enough. It's not good enough. See, this is the deadly poison of what Paul is addressing in the letter to the Galatians and in our text today. And as we turn into into our into the first nine verses of Galatians chapter 1, this is what I want you to take away today. The main, main point. That there is only one gospel that justifies. And if you add your works to it, It's no longer the gospel. It is a deadly poison. Today, what I want you to see as we walk through these first nine verses. First, I want you to see the infallible source. Then the fundamental message. And lastly, the deadly poison. So first, let's start with the infallible source in verses one and two. Paul in his greeting, uh, the greeting to, to the Galatians in this letter, Paul An apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. You see, apparently the false teachers were were trying to convince the believers in those churches in Galatia that Paul's authority and message was merely from man. And therefore, fallible—that means therefore in error. But Paul corrects this this false accusation in the very first sentence of his letter. He identifies himself as an apostle, and an apostle, you may know, means sent one. In the scriptures, there are capital A apostles, and there are little A apostles. But a capital A apostles these were these were men who were invested with a a unique authority by Christ himself, to speak and to write on behalf of Jesus. And one of the requirements to be a capital A apostle was was that a person must have have seen or been an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And Paul identifies himself as this type of an apostle, a capital A apostle. Paul then states that, that his office did not come to him from man or through man. In other words, the source of Paul's apostleship was not man, but Christ. That's what Paul means when he he says not from man. But then he says something quite remarkable. He says that he was directly commissioned, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. See, Paul didn't get his his authority by a congregational vote of the church. He didn't get his authority and his commissioning. Uh, From a current apostle like Peter, who laid his hands on Paul and said, you're an apostle now. No, it was a direct commissioning by the resurrected Jesus Christ himself. In fact, if you look at verses 11 and 12 of uh, Galatians, he, he expands a little further on his commissioning. He says this, for I would have, you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be wondering, did this happen on the road to Damascus? Or did this happen when Ananias laid his hands on Paul and the scales fell from his eyes so he could see? Well, we're not told. But this gospel... That Paul had received through this revelation of Jesus Christ. It was later authenticated as the pure and true gospel. And you can read about that when he went to Jerusalem and met with the church and the apostles there. And you can see that in, at the beginning of chapter two. And so both the commissioning as a capital A apostle and the message of the gospel he was sent with came directly from Jesus Christ, the infallible source directly from God, God the Son. So now that we've seen the infallible source, let's look at the fundamental message in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul says that that Jesus gave himself for our sins. That's the fundamental message of the gospel. In order to understand the gospel and the poison of legalism, we need to take a minute and we need to talk about sin because we have to understand sin in order to understand the gospel. So what is sin? Well, first, John three, four tells us that sin is lawlessness. It's lawlessness. Speaking of not keeping God's law and breaking God's law. The Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, says it this way. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is breaking God's law. And sin is also failing to keep God's law. And we see what God's law is. The moral law is summarized in what we know today as the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. See, two of the greatest delusions that exist for humanity that people have is in regard to their own sinfulness. Most people won't say and say that, oh, I don't have any sin. Most people understand the reality that they have sin. But one of the greatest delusions that people have, two of the greatest delusions that people have is the pervasiveness of sin in them. And the seriousness of that sin in God's sight. See, the scriptures makes no bones about it, that we are sinful through and through. You may remember, if you've been here as we've been walking through Romans, you've seen in the first three chapters in Romans that Paul goes into great detail to, detail to show how both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, are sinners by nature. He writes this in, in Romans chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Every droplet that comes out of that well is polluted. Paul says that no one does good, not even one, because we're all under sin, he says. Isaiah 64, 64, 6 says it this way, that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. See, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the best thing that you and I have ever done is stained with sin. It's like a polluted garment in God's sight. That is to say that even in that outwardly good deed that we may have done, that we were breaking God's law inwardly, whether that be in our, in our thoughts or our motivations, why we did it, or our attitudes, or sometimes in the deed itself. Now, that's a very hard pill to swallow if you think that you have good deeds apart from Christ. But that's what God tells us. And he's been so gracious to give us his law, the Ten Commandments, to act as a mirror so that we can actually see at least a smidgen of what he sees. A couple of years ago, if you were here with us in our 915 classes, we, we did a study on the Ten Commandments. And if you were here during that time, I bet you can relate to me that when you find that, found out what it would look like to actually keep God's law, you realize that, boy... Would it be hopeless? Here's an instance. For instance, the third commandment says this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do you know what it means to take the Lord's name in vain? W.R. Downing answers that question. Here's what he says. God's name is not to be taken In any way less than that which properly and reverently reflects his true nature, worth, honor, glory, and majesty. Let me read that again. It's not to be taken in any way less than that which properly and reverently reflects his true nature, worth, honor, glory, and majesty. All of a sudden, when you start to see what that command requires... You don't you don't ask the question, have I broken the third commandment? You start asking the question, have have I ever not broken the third commandment? See, if we're looking at God's law rightly, it will show us to be idolaters and blasphemers and liars and thieves and adulterers at heart and on and on and on. It's like having a, a toothache. And expecting to go to the dentist and expecting kind of a short trip and him, him saying, yep, that's a cavity, drilling it, getting it out and, and, and filling it and going on your way. But actually what happens is as he pokes around in your mouth, a look of horror comes across his face. And he says, it's way worse than you ever thought. Every single one of your teeth are rotted out. Your jawbone is brittle and disintegrating because of osteoporosis. And your tongue and your gums are infiltrated with the most aggressive form of cancer. See, that's what the law of God is meant to do for us. It's meant to show us how bad it really is. The pervasiveness of our sin. To show us what God sees so that we will stop trying to make ourselves acceptable to God by our own works. Scriptures tell us that God has set a day when all accounts will be settled. It's called Judgment Day. Hebrews 9.27, you're probably familiar with it, says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes judgment. So after we die, unless the Lord comes before, then comes judgment day where our lives apart from those who are apart from Christ will be judged. Now, let me ask you the question. What is the standard that our lives will be examined by? Well, Acts 1731 tells us because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Here's the standard in righteousness. In righteousness. See, the standard is righteousness. God's perfect righteousness that we see in the Ten Commandments, reflected in the Ten Commandments. And so, no matter what you think that God is going to judge you by, you will not be judged by anything other than the Ten Commandments. Your standard, it's not, you're not going to be judged by your standard of righteousness. You're not going to be judged by by God comparing your life to someone else's life. You're not going to be judged by a weighing of your good deeds against your bad deeds. No, you're going to be judged in righteousness. Judged by the Ten Commandments. The table of evidence in God's courtroom on that day is going to contain every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude, every motivation in your life. And the Ten Commandments are going to be brought out and the judge is going to render his verdict based on the evidence. Have you broken his law? Have you failed to keep his, his law perfectly? Well, what will the sentence be for those who are guilty? Romans 6.23 tells us. For the wages of sin is death. Death is the sentence. Breaking God's law is a capital crime. Well, what is death? Listen to Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Listen, which is the second death. See, death is certainly what we we gaze at when we see a cold and a lifeless body in a coffin, but that's not the fullness of it. Death, true death, is ultimately being cast into hell forever. Into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Where the wrath of God is is unleashed against all evildoers. Hell is God's prison for lawbreakers, for sinners. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time this morning talking about sin, but it is so fundamental to understand what it means that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. When the battered and bloodied body of Jesus hung on that cross almost 2,000 years ago, it wasn't the nails that kept him there, as that song that we often sing says. It was the sins of his people from every tribe and nation and tongue. They had broken God's law, the Ten Commandments, and Jesus, in the greatest act of love in history, was there on that cross paying the fine, satisfying the death sentence from noon until three o'clock. Darkness came over the land, signifying that Jesus was under the curse and the infinite wrath of the father that would have come crushing down on his people forever in hell instead of it was unleashed on his own son to come crushing down on his own son. In a very real sense, Jesus was experiencing hell on that cross because the wrath of God was being unleashed on him. And when the fine had been paid in full, Jesus said some of the most beautiful words. He said, it is finished. The judgment has been satisfied. The debt has been paid. He laid down his life and was placed in a tomb. But then on the third day, just as we say every every time we meet every Lord's Day, on the third day, he rose again. Proving. 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 That the Father had accepted the payment that Jesus had made on behalf of his people's sins. He was the Lamb of God that all of those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to. That once for all sacrifice. See, this is what it means that Jesus gave himself for our sins. But how does what happened 2,000 years ago deliver us from this present evil age? Well, this present evil age is is now... Until the the second coming of Christ, it is an age marked by rebellion to God where everyone is under the condemnation of God. Who lives in the present evil age, marching down the path that leads to destruction and the way that you are delivered or rescued from this present evil age is not to start being good so that God will accept you. It's not to try to clean up your life and then come to God so that he'll accept you. It's to do what Jesus said in Mark one twenty five. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a word that, that many people think that they know what it means, but, but many people don't. Repentance is not merely confession of sin. Repentance is a change that takes place in the heart. Where all of a sudden you, 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 you are disgusted by your sin because it offends God. And out of that disgust and hatred for your sin and unbelief, you turn from it and you turn to God with a desire in your heart and an endeavoring to follow him for the rest of the days of your life according to his word, what his word says. That's genuine repentance. And then Jesus also says, believe the gospel, which simply means to place your trust in Christ alone. To rest upon and rely upon Christ's work 2,000 years ago as your sole hope to be acceptable to God. And the instant that you do that, that you repent and trust in Christ, you are fully and eternally acceptable in God's sight. Because the basis for his acceptance is not your performance, but Christ's. See, God gives you what he requires as a gift. He cancels that debt of your sin through Christ's suffering and death on your behalf on the cross. And he credits you with the perfect righteousness of Christ through that perfect law keeping life that Jesus kept through his entire life until he took his last breath. Whose righteousness are you relying on? Is it yours or is it Christ's? Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. After he has just recounted his impressive Jewish history, his pedigree, and then his outwardly impressive law-keeping life, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost. I'm not trusting in any of that anymore. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or comes from me doing something, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Listen, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you have Christ's righteousness through faith, what that means is that your moral successes, your moral failures, your religious activities, your performance, your efforts, your works contribute absolutely nothing towards the increasing or decreasing of your acceptableness in God's sight. If the basis was you and your righteousness, you would be condemned. But by God's grace, the basis is Christ and his work for those who trust in him alone. Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the from this present evil age. This is the fundamental message of the gospel. And then Paul says at the end of verse four that it was according to the will of our God and father. That's just another way of saying that that God ordained that his son would come as that sacrifice who would die For his people and rise for his people. And then Paul tells us in verse five, we see the ultimate goal of the gospel. Look what he says. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, that's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of the gospel is the glory of God. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not you and it's not me. It's the glory of God. That we would marvel at the glorious grace of God and the salvation of sinners like us. By sending his only son to be sacrificed for us. See, the cross shows us God's glorious attributes that he is unwaveringly holy and just. And that no sin will go unpunished. For Christ died for the sins of his people. And that he is jaw droppingly merciful and that he would rescue poor, helpless sinners who are his enemies, who deserve hell. And that he is unfathomably loving and that Christ would sacrifice himself. Not because he deserved it, but in order to rescue his people. And so right here in the greeting of this letter in Galatians, we see that Paul has established the fundamental message, which is all to the glory of God. And so we've seen the infallible source and we've seen the fundamental message. Now let's turn our attention to the deadly poison. Verses six through nine. What I want you to see in these verses is that Paul points to three ways in which legalism is like a deadly poison. Three ways in which legalism is like a deadly poison. First. Why, how is legalism like a deadly poison? He makes it clear that legalism deserts God himself. Verse six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Look at the zeal here. Paul says that he is astonished. Astonished being astonished means that it's a mixture of of surprise and anger. And this is an anger that's not motivated by pride, but out of compassion and love. It's like the anger of a father who cries out when he sees his daughter being lured into slavery. Love compels him to act because he wants freedom and life for his daughter instead of enslavement and destruction. See, Paul's motive is the same. He wants freedom and life for the Galatians, not enslavement and destruction that comes from legalism. See, Christian legalism is so deceiving because Christ still occupies a place in this perverted system of salvation. He's in the he's in the lingo. He's his commands are often the ones that are being obeyed in order to earn acceptance. And so the Christian legalist thinks he has Christ. This is what the Judaizers were doing. They thought they had Christ. But Paul says otherwise. He says relying on your performance means you have deserted God. You have abandoned him personally. Paul says you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See, it's like a dead man floating face down on a lake. And a boater comes by and he jumps into the water and he drags his limp body onto the boat and he performs CPR and he revives the man to life. The man is saved by the grace of the boater. But then after he regains consciousness, instead of resting in the boat and being profusely thankful to the boater for his grace and saving him, he jumps back into the lake in an attempt to play a role in his own rescue by swimming to shore on his own strength. That's what the legalist does. It deserts the Savior for another Savior. And that other Savior is you. Your works, your efforts, your religious devotion. See, legalism is a deadly poison because it deserts God Himself. In well, what, what other ways is legalism like a deadly poison? Second, legalism distorts the gospel. Look at verse seven. Not that there is another one speaking of gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. A common analogy that you hear by a lot of people in the world and even sadly some people in the church is that all world religions are different paths to the same God that everybody is on this 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 their different paths but they all find their end at that same God. Well Jesus of course blows that analogy out of the water when he says that I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me. In other words there's only one path and it's me. But what Paul is saying in verse 7 is that Christian legalism And the gospel, the pure gospel by grace alone, are not two different paths to the same God. The gospel is Christ did it all. Legalism is I did some of it. The gospel is you are acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Legalism is you are acceptable to to God on the basis of your own righteousness, of your own works. See, these are two opposing systems of salvation. Even if faith in Christ is added to legalism, the two systems are still in opposition to one another. This is what the Judaizers were trying to do. But Paul says, no, this is not the gospel. This is a distortion of it. Sometimes Jeff will use the analogy of a a bowl of pure water. All it takes is one drop of cyanide to contaminate the whole thing. And that's what we do when any work on our part is added to the pure gospel of salvation by grace through faith. It contaminates it. It distorts it. And it makes it ineffective. See, legalism is a deadly poison because it distorts the gospel and then lastly, what way is legalism like a deadly poison? Number three, legalism brings curse. It brings curse. Look at verses eight and nine. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, Paul is so certain that the gospel he preached to the Galatians in that first missionary journey, perhaps, is the one and only gospel that he pronounces a curse from God on anyone who would try to contradict it. He's saying, look, beloved. I'm so certain that the gospel of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, that I'm willing to be cursed forever if I ever alter it. I'm so certain about it that I'm willing to pronounce a curse from God on an angel from heaven if he alters it. See, to alter God's message is is curse worthy. Because it's cosmic slander, cosmic libel and cosmic treason rolled all up into one. But there's another reason. And that other reason is because legalism itself brings curse and condemnation in this life. Both in this life and in eternity. See, remember that legalism pursues God's acceptance through performance, through moral effort, through religious devotion. See, everything is okay as long as you're living up to your standard. But the moment you slip, the moment you sin, the moment you fall. You fail to keep up with your Bible reading or your prayers or your church attendance or whatever it is, is your standard. All of a sudden, condemnation comes. That nagging, aching, dreadful feeling of guilt. And along with it comes fear and anxiety and insecurity because you're not sure of your standing with God. Why? Because you think that the basis of your salvation is your performance. And if your performance is shaky, that means your relationship with God is shaky and your salvation is shaky. That's how legalism brings condemnation in this life. How does legalism bring condemnation in eternity? Well, have you guys ever seen that show, the Antique Roadshow? I love that one. It's where people have some heirloom that they think has value. And they bring it to the antique road show who and they bring it to an appraiser who can tell them all about the heirloom. And then the climax is they tell them the value. The legalist is like that. He thinks that his performance and religious efforts have value. And so he says, God, the reason that you should let me into heaven, let me into the new heavens and new earth is because of all these things that I've done. But to his surprise, God the appraiser says, Your works are not assets, they're liabilities. Legalism is a deadly poison because it brings curse. But for someone, Who's clinging to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It doesn't bring curse. It brings eternal life. Such a person brings nothing before God because he knows he has nothing to bring. Rather, he says, God, the reason you should let me into heaven is because of Jesus alone He satisfied the sentence for my sin 2,000 years ago and you gifted to me or imputed to me his perfect righteousness as a gift through faith, a faith that even you gave me. As we close this morning and move to a close this morning, I want to ask you, have you been breathing in the deadly poison of legalism? Have you been relying on your own performance on your own moral efforts, on your own religious duties in an attempt to gain God's acceptance. Maybe you say, "I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I want to give you seven signs that will help. Seven signs that would indicate that you might be breathing in the deadly poison of legalism. So that if you are It would be helpful to know that today so that you can hightail it out of that house like John and Gina did when they learned that they were being poisoned by carbon monoxide. You can hightail it out of that legalistic system and come to Christ or return to Christ. Sign number one that would indicate that you might be breathing in the deadly poison of legalism. You live your life as if God accepts you because you live according to a certain set of rules. I cannot tell you How pervasive this is in the church. Church members thinking that God accepts them because of them keeping a certain set of rules, whether it be don't drink. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I don't cuss. Southern word. Sign number two you might be a legalist. This is the case. When you sin, you think that God's acceptance diminishes and you need to regain that acceptance by your obedience. Whether that's doing a good deed. Or whether that's going to a priest for confession and absolution. Number three. When you compare your righteousness to other people, you either feel really good Or really bad. Number four. You might be a legalist if you think your Bible reading, prayer life, labors in ministry, church attendance, participation in sacraments contribute in any way to God's acceptance of you or the increasing of your righteousness. Number five. You would be embarrassed if genuinely repentant, but struggling drug addicts, alcoholics, or those with same-sex attraction or something else were members of your church. Number six, parents, you teach your kids that God works kind of like Santa Claus. Be good, and you will get the gift of God's acceptance. That's dangerous. Number seven. Students. Teens. You endure an hour and 15 minute service like this. And you think that things are right with you and God because of that. I lived that way for a very long time. See, all of these point to legalism because they all imply that the basis of God's acceptance is human performance rather than Christ's perfect performance. Now, this isn't meant to eliminate the reality that if you are justified, you will definitely see fruit, evidence of that God's justifying work in the future. You certainly will. But none of those works contribute not one cent to your righteousness, your acceptableness in God's sight. See, if you can discern any of these signs of legalism in your own heart today, I want to urge you that it's not too late to escape. You don't have to spend another moment breathing in that deadly poison. Because that deadly poison is slavery. Legalism is slavery. But the gospel is freedom. Freedom. Legalism will enslave you to fear and anxiety and insecurity because you never know if you're performing well enough. But the gospel will free you to live in confidence and assurance that things are right between you and God because you're not looking to your unstable performance, but you're looking to Jesus' perfect performance on your behalf. Legalism enslaves you to obey God. In this burdensome attempt to earn his acceptance. But the gospel frees you to obey God. Out of love and gratitude to him. Because he has accepted you by his extravagant grace and mercy. Legalism will enslave you to an eternity in hell. But the gospel will free you to an eternity of true life with Christ forever in the new heavens and new earth. There is only one gospel that justifies. And if you add your works to it, it's no longer the gospel. It's a deadly poison. Don't breathe it. Let's pray. Father, we're blessed this morning to have your word. How easy it is for us to fall into the trap of legalism. To try to earn our acceptance for you. when Lord, just as Paul is so passionate and zealous in this letter to to remind the people in Galatia. Don't add to the gospel. Don't add works to it in order to be acceptable before God. Lord, there's so much burdens we often carry because we slip into that. We slip into a legalistic mindset, as Jeff says, we we wake up as legalists every day and we got to start out being saturated with the gospel to remind us our acceptance comes from Christ and his work alone. Lord, I pray if there's any in here today. That has been breathing in that deadly poison of legalism, living as if what they do makes them acceptable to you. I pray for grace, Lord to bring them the true true saving faith in the pure unadulterated gospel of salvation by grace alone through the through the righteousness of Christ imputed. Lord, guard any mind in here from the misunderstanding that the kind, the kind of faith that justifies as if if, if that kind of faith doesn't result in, in good works and fruit, because that's your word tells us that that's not true either. That those who have true faith, as James says, good works will follow. They will come out of that. If there is the fire of salvation, there will be the smoke of good works. And so, Lord, I, I pray for grace, but let none be relying on those good works to make them acceptable to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel. And pray that you, Lord, would be honored and glorified today through our time. Do the work, Lord. Both now as well as when we leave. Take your word and grow. Like only you can.